what point in the draft should you take on more risk? Avoid injury-prone pitchers altogether? Consistency in head-to-head formats? And the Grissom Cliff? Well, you'll find out what that means next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Oh, wow. We've got a big trade, we'll, which we will discuss later on. Corbin Burns headed to the Orioles. We'll talk about that later. What's going on with you, Ruven? Not much, but I did want to congratulate you on a nomination. You were nominated for the FSWA Baseball Writer of the Year Award. Fourth time in six years, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Wow. <laughs> I, I did not expect that again, but uh, I guess uh, good quality work, and uh, uh, th- thank you very much. Yeah, it's really an honor uh, to be uh, to be nominated. Such a fantastic group of uh, people nominated, including uh, Carlos Marcano and Nick Pollock, who won it last year. So uh, thank you very much, FSWA, and uh, re- really appreciate it. Yep, it's a great thing to be part of a podcast with someone who's been nominated for the FSWA Baseball Writer of the Year four out of six years. That's a good thing. That's that's crazy. I, I it's just mind boggling. But uh, uh, I I try my hardest, and uh, we try for you to give you the best information and strategy. So uh, uh, let's start here. But let's bring on our guest tonight. You might know her from Bleed Cubby Blue. She's a fantastic Cubs fan. Sarah Sanchez, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. And yes, congrats on the FSWA nomination. Well-deserved. And I'm excited to be back with y'all. Talk a little baseball. Thank you very much. Yes, excited to have you back to talk about uh, some middle infielders. A little bit of Cubs, a little bit of NL Central today, I'm sure, because of the big trade. Uh, But uh, before that, we always start with our strategy section. I'm going to talk a little bit about risk tonight. Um, I know it's a big topic with me, and we wanted to get your take on it. So let's start with uh, risk, and we'll start very generally. True or false, Sarah, the idea when you're drafting in your fantasy league is you want to minimize risk early on in your draft, and you want to increase your risk late in the draft. What say you? So I think this is generally true for me, but I actually think that I think about risk in a, in a few different ways. So there are types of risk that you're evaluating when you're drafting. And so one form of risk is injury, for example. Has a player been hurt a lot? Are they likely to miss a ton of time? There's also risk in players who are volatile, like players who have these big peaks and valleys. I think of Christopher Morrell, who is one of my favorite players, who goes on these tears where he is the best hitter in baseball and then goes through these lulls where he's just not doing very much at all. And that's probably related to the third type of risk I think about a lot, uh, which is related to age. Is your player really young and unpredictable or is your player old and potentially unpredictable in the sense that they could have a struggle that they never come back from, right? And so I think that I try to avoid risk in the early rounds, but the type of risk is a little bit different depending on what's going on with that particular draft and where I already have risk on my roster. So take a guy like Corbin Carroll, who is a youngster, not a lot of experience, right? So he's got the experience issue. Also have uh, with him a a shoulder issue, maybe. We're not exactly sure. How does he classify into you in terms of risk? 
Carol's a great example um, and someone that I'm probably avoiding in round one because of the shoulder issue, even though I love the player. I think he's super fun and I think he's a 40-40 potential guy. But if I have the opportunity to be in that area where I'm drafting Carroll, I'm likely to take a Julio Rodriguez before Carroll. I'm likely to try to take a Kyle Tucker before Carroll. I think Carroll moves a little bit farther back for me because I do worry that that shoulder issue could potentially pull him off the field for large periods of time, even though I like the player a lot. All right, Ruvain, what about you? Is the idea to minimize risk earlier on and increase risk later on? In general, yes, but it also depends on how you perceive risk. Do you, th- do you think that someone who's only been doing it for one year, is that a risky uh, uh, aspect of him? Is it injury that's the, you're, you're nervous about? It also depends on the format, whether or not you're going for an overall or you're going for a league title. Um, so it, I think you should minimize risk if you're going for a league title and not an overall title. If you're going for overall title, then Corbin Carroll should be the number four guy because he could have that value and should be pushed up on your board just like that. And other examples, like if you want to take that risk on Ellie De La Cruz, which a lot of people don't want to do, but they're taking that risk in the second or second round, early second round, mid-second round. You want to take that risk? Fine. You could take that risk if you're going for the overall and if you think you you think he's going to take the next step. So I think it already depends on how everyone perceives risk. I think Ellie De La Cruz is a little bit different. I don't perceive buying him in the second round as a risk. I perceive that as a bad valuation of the math there. I mean, the percentile outcome that you're paying for in the second round of Ellie De La Cruz is like his 80th or so percentile, right? It's not the middle percentile. It's not his, his median. You're, you're buying his upside already. That's not a risk thing. That's a, just a, 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 a bad pricing uh, model by people buying him. Uh, Corbin Carroll's more of a, more of a you know, uh, an issue with the risk. You know, like, take a guy like Shohei Otani. Um, I'm afraid that Shohei Otani will lose playing time because the Dodgers want to rest him. Hey, the Dodgers are going to make the playoffs almost assuredly, but we want him good for down the stretch. We want him healthy rolling into the postseason. He might lose playing time. Um, and his, and I don't know how he's going to react and come back right away from Tommy John surgery. So, you know, I, I'm going to push him a little bit further because I don't want to take on that risk of what's going to happen. Um, I mean, the, the, the tenant is correct that you need to minim- lower your risk early on and, and uh, increase your risk late. I mean, what you want to – there's an old expression. Uh, you, you can't win your draft in the first round, but you can certainly lose it. And really, what you need to do is to buy players with very high floors uh, so that you're, you're banking statistics. You want to make sure that you've amassed a very large percentage of what the stats you're paying for in the first couple of rounds, and you do that by buying fairly stable players. When, when you want to pay for people lower down, especially very late, the opportunity cost is very low. If you pay $2 for, or $3 for a Nestor Cortez— so if he's bad, you throw him away, right? But he could be a league-winning pitcher. So you want to take those risks when they're cheap. It's the law of, of return on investment, right? You, you either want to have a big investment or a low return. Any other thoughts? I mean, Shohei Otani, I think, is a really interesting example here. And I, I just wrote up a little blurb um, that I, about Shohei Otani specifically that he is the, he is the player at the back end of round one that I just cannot see myself drafting at this point in time. I think that you're absolutely right. 
about the risk coming back from Tommy John. His worst offensive season in the majors was the last time he came back from Tommy John. But beyond that, there are some playing time concerns, right? Like what are the Dodgers going to do with him? It really looks like the Dodgers are setting themselves up to rest a bunch of guys, just like you said, for that playoff run. And there are so many players going around him that don't have similar risk baked in. You can take a Jose Ramirez. You can take a Trey Turner. You can take a Juan Soto. You can take an Aaron Judge. Um, The piece that I was just working on, I actually had Corey Seager in that group. And I think Corey Seager's out of that group for me now because there's a risk with him with this hernia injury that he's going to miss, you know, 20 or 30 games at the start of the season. And that pushes him just far enough back that I don't think he's in that conversation anymore. Right. It's not an upside question, right? We know what Otani's upside is, right? It's it's first, second pick of the draft, right? And certainly if he wasn't injured and certain right, he he would be taken number one, right? Or number two number two outside of Acuna, possibly. Um, but it, it's not a valuation thing, it's a pure risk thing. Now, a question for you, Sarah. Is there a line of demarcation for risk? Meaning, is there a point in the draft where you say, okay, all right, I understand this guy is risky, but I'll take a shot on him. Like, where, where do you loosen your gauge in terms of I don't really think about risk. I'm just going to take either people who I like or people who are just have upside. Like, where in the draft do you start worrying less? It's such a great question, and it's not one that I've ever pinpointed before you sent out the rundown today, but I was looking back at the drafts that I've done so far this season. And it looks like I'm most likely to start introducing risky players right around round or 10. Um, I have one ninth round Yanir Diaz that is a pretty risky pick for me as my catcher one. I don't normally go for like the shiny new catcher toy. I tend to like stick with Wilson Contreras or William Contreras or the, or the dudes that I know. Uh, but right around that ninth, 10th round appears to be the place where I start introducing, okay, I'm willing to try to take some upside on a guy I believe in. Ruvain, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Do you think ninth round is an appropriate choice, or are you more risk-averse or less risk-averse? I am less risk-averse. I'm probably going to wait until the 15th round. I want to get a good base. I want to spread my risk as much as possible. If you spread your risk, you have a better chance of finishing in the top part of your league. If, if you're more, usually if you're riskier, there's a better, there's a better chance that there's going to be an injury, your team's going to fall off, and you may not you know, get to where you want, or there'll be an issue with a player not performing up to where they're supposed to because you're drafting somebody too soon. Like, it's also risky if you're drafting on let's say on the turn and and you want to pick somebody you don't know if he's going to make it around so you're going to risk it and you're going to wait for that turn to come back to you and hope that player comes back to you you know there's a lot of different things i usually want to wait to the 15th round usually that gives me a good base overall for pitching hitting i'll have i'll have a basic idea of who my starters are and who i'm comfortable with after that i can take whoever i want so that's more risk averse if you're waiting longer um and and uh i'm that way too um I don't even know if I have a line of demarcation. I'm pretty risk-averse the entire draft. I'm good with taking an old, boring guy um, pretty late. Uh, I, I, I don't care about taking old, boring guys. That's fine. Where I really say it doesn't really matter or, all right, give it a shot, it's probably about, yeah, I'd say roughly uh, around the uh, the 15th round also, Ruvain, where like a $5 level in terms of auctions. Anything less than $5, you're going to be churning with, with – uh, with high certainty unless they really pan out right away in your league. So, you know, f- anything above $5, you're paying a premium. Now, for some people, this might be 10 right? Uh, Sarah said round nine, that might $10 might be your level. Um, whatever level you're comfortable for, w- w- comfortable with, I should say, 
you should at least be conscious of it. That, okay, I need to, before this line, I need to not take risky players. After the line, I can relax. Just make sure you have it in your mind. Do you think that varies in format for you, Sarah? Like, uh, if uh, if you're in a, a shallow league, a, a, a 10, 12-team mixed league, you might have a different demarcation line. And if you're in a mono league, maybe you just don't take any risky players or you just take uh, make sure you've got starters and playing time and things like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that in shallow leagues, I'm much more likely to take risks because I know that I can replace that risk on the waiver wire. Um, in a mono league, I'm basically just going for playing time. I want dudes who have jobs. <laughs> I think that is the entire game. But in addition to that, I think that I'm, I'm more likely to take risks in leagues that have fab. Like if you're looking at something that is, say, a gladiator or you're looking at something that's like a draft and hold, you might have one or two risky players in there who you're taking a chance on, but you really need to be able to get through the entire season with all of the players that you have drafted on draft day. And so it makes a guy who has a job to me much more compelling, even in the later rounds than a guy who might be struggling for playing time. I'm less sure that it matters as much uh, between Roto and head to head, but I think that that's partially because I feel like head to head points and categories is just a little bit of a crapshoot sometimes. Yeah, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about head-to-head, but just just to respond, if you're in a best ball format, um, there you actually do want to take more risks because it's going to be the highest point total counted. You want guys to have large variances, right? Uh, And uh, when I ask about consistency week-to-week, in a best ball format, you certainly don't really care about consistency as much as you want guys who can have those big weeks to gain the points. Is that true for you in, in head-to-head format, Sarah, where you know you, you want to have consistent players, or are you don't care, you're agnostic about it, or do you specifically want players that have large swings? I do want consistent players for head-to-head formats, and I find that there are tools, especially on fan graphs, where you can do some player comparisons to get an idea of whose floor is higher over the course of a season. So the thing with head-to-head that kind of drives me crazy is that you don't know what a what a guy's week is going to look like beyond the schedule, like five games versus seven games, that type of thing. They could be in a little mini slump. They could face a pitcher that they don't normally do very well against, or a pitcher could have a bad outing against a team, that type of stuff. But if you look at, say, and, and I did this um, on fan graphs before the show, just like the top end of the first base market. And so you compare, say, a Freddie Freeman, a Vlad Guerrero Jr., a Matt Olson, and a Pete Alonso. you can see in those WOBA charts that Freddie Freeman has the higher floor. And he always has the higher floor. And he's always the dude that you would prefer to have in that situation. And it, and it allows you to get an idea of, now, is that necessarily going to win you your matchup in the 30th week of the season? I don't know. Maybe not. But it's certainly going to help you out. Ruben, how do you evaluate uh, consistency in the various formats? Well, you were talking about head-to-head. When it comes to head-to-head, I think that for consistency, the offensive players, you should always go for that. For the pitchers, though, you know, you never know when a pitcher is going to blow up. So you can take more risks when it comes to head-to-head, uh, you know, uh, taking pictures, getting people off the waiver wire. You can take more risks during in-season, even in preseason, if you think they're going to have a better schedule to start the season or and, and you or they're playing in a better division. You want to take that risk, even though you know there's a better pitcher out there, but you're taking this one because of certain reasons, then 
you're willing to take that risk. Best ball, obviously, I, I I'm you take as much not as much risk, but I'm willing to take risk in that in that type of format only because you got nothing to lose. If, if basically you got nothing to lose with that. Um, and when it comes to other leagues, I you know I I wanted to mention Tom comparing home leagues and let's say doing. And FBC types leagues. If you're doing it a home league, I think I can take more risk in a home league because I think I am. I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think I do more research and I'm looking at more players and I'm more consistent. I'm following up more and I can take more risk because I think I am a little bit smarter than my average player in the home league that I'm currently in. When it comes to NFBC, I don't know if I'm going to do that because I think there are other players in NFBC that are willing to take more risk. So I'm going to be a little more conservative in that type of format. Yeah, well, very interesting points there about the home league that uh, you do have to know your competitors and see what you can get away with and more volatile. And, uh, yes, very true. Uh, if you're in a season-long format, you know, Roto, where it accumulates, I won't start crappy matchups, right? You don't want to blow your ERA and whip, right? I don't want to blow my ratios. But if you are in a head-to-head -head format where it's weekly, uh, if a guy has a bad matchup, okay, you lose the week. Or head-to-head -head points league, you know, you lose the week, all right? but doesn't torch you for the rest of the season, so you can take a lot more chances. So that does really, the format really does depend on the volatility that you take on. So true. I want to ask a question about injury risk pitchers uh, to you, Sarah, and specifically about projections. And one thing I've noticed, and I'm a projections guy here, I've noticed that when you do projections, and, and I try with ATC, you know, ATC comes out a little bit better with this, I think, than, than the rest of the projections, is the playing time is always so high for these pitchers who are c coming off injuries or are injured. Like Shane Bieber, why are projection systems projecting him for 185 innings? The dude is not pitching. <laughs> he, he might not pitch at all, or who knows? Joe Musgrove, what? Joe Musgrove ended the season injured. Can you really count on him for a whole thing? Clayton Kershaw, every year, we know he's going to be injured, but projection systems had him at 150, 160 innings. Why is that so about projections, and uh, how do you navigate that when you're drafting? Because I'm, I'm sure you do look at projections. I know you do. It's such a great question, and honestly, my initial thought with this is it's it's wishful thinking. We're dreaming on 150 innings from Clayton Kershaw, but – I actually think we're just worse at projecting pitching for a handful of reasons at the moment. And um, Eno Saris in his uh, pitcher rankings that came out earlier this week has a has a really good write up about why he thinks that is just in terms of the mechanics of pitching, the type of risk that is involved for pitchers and that repetitive motion and, and the ways in which they get injured and the ways in which their arsenals change that that truly make projecting pitching really hard. I also think that there's some structural things going on in baseball that change how we can project pitchers and that they're working against projection systems and they're not necessarily baked in. So for example, new strategies with openers or with guys being the long guy or something like that, those are not necessarily things every team is is deploying the same way, right? Like the Giants deploy that differently than the Cubs deploy that differently than the Rays. You have changing limits on how long pitchers are going to be in games or what their roles might be in terms of going three times through the order or maybe even getting to, to a second time through the order, right? And you have changing strategies about how guys are going to come in and out of the game. Um, and I think that there's that as teams do different things, it makes it harder for the projection systems to capture 
all of that. And the very last thing I'll say here is the other part of Eno's rankings that I really liked, and I was kind of pouring through them earlier this week and trying to incorporate them into some tier work I'm doing for the Glarf draft that is in about 10 days, is that he's got uh, Jeff Zimmerman's injury grades on there, which are based on, you know, how much time has this pitcher spent on the injured list recently, like what types of injuries are in their past and all of those types of things. And it's super helpful to look at because there's all sorts of blind spots that I, I truly hadn't even thought of. So for example, Zach Wheeler has an F on that injury grade system. And I think of Zach Wheeler as a very durable, reliable pitcher, but he has missed time for injury the last few seasons. It's a good way to keep ourselves honest about who these guys are and how much they're going to pitch. I think it's it's less about the actual raw projections and knowing that for pitchers who have The projections are not the result of, well, he could be 140 innings, 160, 170. It's more like, is it 170 or is it 10, right? It's more binary. And when you have projections that have a large swing in between, like their their process risk or their parameter risk is is much wider, Um, the percentiles are much farther apart, you have to price them with a larger risk discount. And I think it's more about the pricing algorithm uh, and that what we're lacking in the projection systems is that it's not just the raw stats, it's the pricing algorithm the pricing algorithm uh, on how to risk discount these players. Ruvain, what are your thoughts on this? Because you're, you're the injury guy, and uh, do you notice uh, that, that these uh, numbers are always too much inflated, and uh, how do you deal with it? I think they are inflated for this reason. They're comparing injuries to pitchers or injured pitchers coming back to hitters that are injured when they come back. They should not be doing that. When If a, if a pitcher has a knee or a meniscus tear, something like that, they're going to be out longer than a hitter who has a meniscus tear. A hitter, they have less issues because of repetitive motion and stuff like that. A pitcher has to do the same motion over and over and over again. A hitter, he has a one, it's a, it's a violent swing, but they have one swing and they can, you know, they'll know whether or not they're better. But if a pitcher comes back too soon from an injury or is pushed too soon, too soon their mechanics can fall along off and then they can injure another body part so that's why shoulder injuries turn into elbow injuries elbow injuries turn into wrist injuries um and i i think that people are comparing the injuries similar to hitters and pitchers and it just doesn't work that way plus pitchers when they come back from injury especially um from uh, when they're end, end of season injury, they tend to have a lot of setbacks, and much more setbacks than hitters do. You hear that a lot more often. This pitcher had a setback. They're shutting them, shutting them down. How often do you hear that from the hitters when they're when they're injured? This goes for in-season also. It's it's much more common for pitchers just because of the way they are and the, and the violent motion they're doing 50, 70, 90 times a game. It, it's just, it, it's just, that's I think that's the reason why, and, they, and they're just evaluating them as hitters as the same way and as, as the same type of injury, and that's the problem. That's a very good take. Uh, um, I'm, I'm going to give that some thought because uh, uh, that that might be what's, what's going on is that the model just doesn't do a good job you know, with the manual playing time. Um, ATC, by the way, does a better job than other projection systems on the whole. It does take off uh, more for, for injury and for missing time. I'll go back to you, Ruvain. You know, we've talked – uh, you know, offline and when we draft that, you know, we've been guilty of seeing uh, these pitchers, you know, Joe Musgrove last year. Well, what a great discount. So, well, it's a $6 bargain. You got to go for that. Oh, Chris Paddock. Wow. You're getting a $7 bargain. You go for that. And we've, you know, uh, Jacob DeGrum, there was one or two years where we bought him and, you know, we know how, how that turned out. The question is, 
should we be just staying away from these pitchers completely? Should the risk discount be more? Maybe there should be a a, a, a maximum spend for any risk pitcher, right? Uh, you know, okay, a risky pitcher's fine, but only spend $7 and don't bother with anybody. Like, do you think there's a better way of handling these in terms of how you spend and how you approach them at the draft or auction? Well, at the dresser auction, I think I've gone to limit it to a discount to a no count. I just don't want injured pitchers who I know are not going to start the season on my roster anywhere near my roster. If they say they're going to come back May, June, I'm even nervous about that anymore because I, I need to have my county stats. I need to get the strikeouts. I need to get the innings. I need to get all that stuff done and get wins. But if you don't have someone out there and you have to do replacement value, replacement level for starting the season, it's not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be what you're paying for. If a player's in, if a pitcher's injured preseason during the spring training, I'm more apt to take the, that pitcher only because it's usually just muscular in nature, and usually they can recover a lot quicker. Like last year with Joe Musgrove, he had a, a toe injury. We took the discount on him because he he dropped like a like a like a lead pipe just because he was going to be out for a month. But we knew what the injury was. It wasn't something that it was from last year, and we don't know what's going on. Like Max Fried, he had an elbow injury last year. He missed two months. Are you drafting him where you, you really think he's going to be, or are you going to take that discount? There should be a little bit of discount on him, and if you're not getting that discount, do you want to take that risk of that elbow injury popping up again? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and Sarah, you know, Max Fried, good example for a pitcher who's going at a you know, slight discount. If he was healthy, you'd say, wow, pounce on Max Fried all the time. Well, what's your take on this? Do, do you have a, I'm not buying this list? Do you just say, all right, I'll take a three-round discount? Do you say, I'm only going to take risky pitchers round 15 and later? Like, How do you handle these kinds of uh, injuries for pitchers specifically? Well, with pitchers, I really don't think that you can just avoid them specifically. I think you would wind up with a roster that doesn't have enough starting pitchers on it because, as Ruvain was just saying, like pitching as a activity tends to injure people. I do think that you can quantify where those injuries are and look at them as to whether they are an injury that was determined by pitching itself or whether it was something else. I mean, a guy like Chris Sale is a really good example here. He seems to get hurt just existing. He is broken almost all of the time. He is also, once again, predicted for like a $15 season by some projection systems. And so are you going to be out on a guy who can give you that type of profit where he is going because of the injury? Absolutely not. Like you have to take some risks with a Chris Sale. But I think that you can pair your pitching risk in ways that you take a Chris Sale, but he's the only guy you take, right? Like you don't take Chris Sale and Walker Bueller and Shane Boz and Tyler Glass now. Like that might be a very high upside pitching situation, but it's going to be a pitching situation that might throw 50 innings combined if everything goes wrong. You want to take some of those guys with guys who are going to be innings horses who haven't had those types of injuries recently. And hopefully you build your roster in such a way that yes, you have some risk because it's it's inevitable. You can't avoid it entirely with pitching, but you take that risk in one or two spots per draft and you pair it with non-risky guys. Yeah, I think that's good advice that you have to be conscious of the aggregate risk nature on your team as well as you have to receive the proper discount for such a risky player. I mean, Chris Sale, I think you're going to need at least a $5 discount to roster him. I wouldn't do that. If my number said $15 is what he's worth at, uh, you know, 160 innings or so, 
uh, I, I need at least a 5 $6 discount on that. And you're right. If you take a Chris sale, you know, let that be the one or two risks that you take. And that is true that you, uh, you know, you can't go no risk or it would be foolish to say I'm going to avoid every single risky pitcher because then you're really going to limit the player pool that you're going to uh, go. Before we move on to middle infielders, is there anything else anybody wants to say about risk? We touched on a lot of topics. Anyone? Bueller? Walker Bueller, <laughs> I, I I think we covered it. I think we covered it pretty well. Um, I think the the main idea with risks though is that if you are have a, we didn't mention this yet, but if we you have you're in a lot of leagues, you're in 15, 20 leagues, you can have one of those leagues that can roster that exact pitching staff that Sarah just mentioned because you can do it if you're if you're willing to do that. But if you're only in like a handful of leagues, you don't want to do that because by by July your season may be over. Yeah, that's another separate point, the fact that uh, I call them power drafters. If you have a guy playing the NFBC and you're putting together 15 different teams competing in an overall, um, you're going to say, I'll take a, sh- a shot on sale in this league. I'll take my Musgrove share here. I'll take my Max Fried share here. Uh, it keeps the price up or sane for for the AAV, right? If if if, if nobody was interested in doing that, you know, the, the price of them would fall even more. It's kept up, of course. Somebody's going to take a share because there's so many. There, there are le- there are players that are playing in multiple leagues, and they care more about um, more about spreading the risk of players uh, and differentiating their portfolio and diversifying. Oh, we'll take this injury risk here. This one will make a safe team. This right. They're doing all sorts of different things, hopefully hitting on one of them, that it plays very different than the advice that we're giving you. We're giving you advice more geared, I think, towards a standalone league. Uh, but if you're playing the game differently, it's very, very, very different. Right? Make sense? Yep. I think that makes perfect sense. And I, um, I'm i so glad that Ruben brought that up because one of the things I think about is, look, I'm happy to take a Shane Boz once <laughs> out of like 10 drafts. <laughs> I will take him on one team. I don't need him on 15 teams. Yeah, I like drafting. Not that I like drafting the same player on every team, but if the guy is a large value, I want to take him more, right, just by propensity. But you do have to watch yourself more on the risky players. All right, let's talk middle infielders. This is our middle infielder preview show, our final preview of the batters for Fantasy Baseball 2024. So let's end off with middle infielders. And as we do for all these shows, let's just start out with our general middle infield player pool observations. Sarah, take it away. What do you spot here uh, that comes to mind when you're looking at middle infielders for 2024? Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting things going on here. And middle infield is super deep in terms of the second baseman and shortstops that you can roster who are valuable. In fact, I was looking at ATC projections earlier today and 28 players are worth at least $10 in value at middle infielder. Um, But every team needs to roster at least three of those guys. So depending on your league size, you know, it's 30 guys in a 10 team or it's 36 in a 12 team or it's 45 in a 15 teamer. And so there's still going to be some fighting down at the bottom of the pool there. I feel like there is kind of a cliff right around where Von Grissom and Luis Renjifo go that starts to make me nervous because I'm very skeptical of the playing time Jonathan India and Brandon Lau are going to get like those are two players I don't really want to have to roster every single day. They're players I'd rather stream. And so once you get to that Von Grissom, Luis Renjifo level, I think you have to start being pretty cautious. Yeah, I agree with that. That's a great analysis. Yes, very, very deep position. At Now, at the very, very top, you got Bobby Witt and Mookie Betts. 
They're the super elite middle infielder. You really only have one elite middle infielder. It's Trey Turner. But then after that, you have such a cluster of players that are valuable, but all together. I mean, to me, that tells you that you should not overpay for middle infield, right? Because if there's 10 guys between 17 and $21, it really doesn't matter which one you get. Get the cheapest one. You can wait on middle infielders. You don't You don't have to stress on it. You can get your top shortstop or top second baseman later than you think. You don't have to pay right up at the top. If you are in a deeper league, though, exactly as you say, when you get to the Grissom and Rangifo, uh, if you're playing a league that goes deep, get somebody before then. I don't trust anybody there. So the league is pretty much deep. It's uh, wide at the bottom, but at the in the roots, there are no roots. There's nothing down below. They were talking outfield, a corner in, more corner infield territory in the deep league $1 players. Ruvain, any thoughts to add? Yes, I think I'm a lot more comfortable taking that $1 infielder at the end of the draft than taking that $1 outfielder. I think there's more paths for profit with that $1 middle infielder than the $1 outfielder. So I'm probably going to bulk up on my outfield, make sure I have my outfield done already, and then I can take go toward the bottom of the infield and be pretty comfortable with it. Yeah, totally agree on that. Um, position scarcity. Um, it used to be that middle infielders, you had to pay up. Uh, can we all agree that the days of position scarcity for middle infield are, are over? Yep. Yeah, yes. I agree. Yes. Okay. Um, are you comfortable paying any price point for middle infield this year? Are you comfortable, Sarah, with getting two $1 middle infielders and, and bulking up everywhere? Or do you like spreading your middle infielders all throughout the draft? spreading it around a bit I I actually like that $10 tier quite a bit I I think there's some really interesting players who are right in that like 10 to 15 dollar range and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of them in a bit and I want to have one of them like I want to have a shortstop or a second baseman who is in that upper tier I want to have one that's in that middle tier and then when you start to look at like the five dollar players anybody right right around that like Grissom Renhifo area like I, I I'm fine adding that guy as my middle infielder but I don't really want to wait much longer than that because last year I went pretty sparse at this position I had like and I had a team with Corey Seager on it and we all know Corey Seager missed like the first six weeks of the season with an oblique injury I found myself on the waiver wire the first weeks of the season praying for Mauricio Dubon and that was not a fun experiment so I think I'm being a little bit more cautious with middle infielder this year, I'm looking at guys who have multi-position eligibility and guys who really look like they're going to play. Some of those, uh, like a Jeff McNeil, a guy who has a 2B, 2B outfield eligibility, that's very attractive to me. And I think that I, I'm willing to sprinkle it throughout, but I, I'm not quite throwing caution to the wind the same way I did last year. Yeah, I think this year playing the waiver wire for middle infielders is not as good as in other years. I think that you're right that getting a multi-eligible guy, maybe an outfield slash middle infield, where, oh, okay, if your guy is injured, then you can shift whoever you have in outfield to that. And this way, on the waiver wire, you can look for middle infielders, outfielders. If you've got corner slash middle infield eligibility, use that, right? Getting the multi-eligible players does play in because I think that middle infield is thin in the wire. It's great in the draft, and I don't care where I play this year. I'm good with taking somebody high, low. I think there's just so many options that, hey, let let the rest of the room buy out the people. I'll take the remaining whatever is cheapest because it's going to be just as good as everybody else. Agree, Ruvain? 
Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Take the value uh, toward the mid part of the list of the middle infielders because the top top guys, especially in an auction, they're going way too high right now. I think if you wait a little bit, you wait and you get to let's say the Nico Horner. I can I'm, I can stomach that. I know you like that a lot, Sarah. But Nico Horner, I like that. I like that level right there. I like the Glaber Torres, who's a safe guy. I like the, the middle part. It's definitely safe. I, listen, if there's a bargain higher up, I have no problem taking that, and I'll take one of those middle guys or the guys who are worth ten or eleven bucks also because those are great value as well all right and just to set up the position uh, finally are there any specific stats that you feel that you need to get for middle infield i kind of think that you need at least some steals in your middle infield there should be one dedicated middle infield steal spot do you agree I definitely agree on steals. And the other thing that I look for from this spot is average. I feel like middle infield is where a lot of the guys who hit like 270 and above play. And if you aren't getting average from your middle infield, you have to get it from your outfield. Those are like the spots where you can get average. Agree. All right. So let's do some ATC undervalued players. As we do on the show, we focus in on some possible bargains as ATC predicts. So let's start. Uh, start at the top. Now, this is not a dollar bargain, but Bo Bichette is close to par value, a dollar or two uh, of, of a premium that you have to pay. But when you're all the way up top, it's worth considering. Bo Bichette had, I mean, he, he, he had been a 25-plus dollar player before then. He was going as, as high as, like, fifth overall pick a couple of years ago. But now he's going a lot later. He's going almost in the end of the third round. Same player. Uh, he didn't steal this year. Maybe he was injured. What's your take, Sarah, on Bo Bichette? Is this a good value? Is this a guy that could earn first-round value that you're getting two rounds later? I really like Bo Bichette, but I am worried about the stolen bases. It seems to be a deliberate strategy to not have him run as much. And so what we were just talking about, if you're planning on getting steals from your shortstop, then Bo Bichette might not be the dude that you want to take right there, or you have to figure out a way to get those stolen bases from some other slot. So maybe you picked an outfielder that has a lot of steals, like you have a uh, Julio Rodriguez or you have a Corbin Carroll on your team. You can take Bo Bichette later. Everything else looks great to me, honestly. And the one thing that I was a little bit concerned about before I dug into the numbers, it kind of looked like the power fell off for him, which is a thing that had happened to a lot of Toronto hitters. But on a game-by-game basis, it really didn't. He was still on track for a 25 home run season. So I think Bo Bichette is a great value, and I would love to have him on some of my teams. And we talked about batting average. Who can tell me the last time that Bo Bichette hit under 290 in a single season? Never. Yeah, never. Never. That's that's exactly how I was going to start, that he's never hit below 290. He had a higher line drive rate. He he, he hit less home runs because he had a lower fly ball rate, and he was hitting the ball on the ground more. He also dealt with knee and quad issues, which may have affected his stolen bases. But what's very odd, though, he had three stolen bases before the injuries and two after. So he wasn't really running that much. Um, Where he's going right now is a great value, I think. Last year, by the way, I'm talking about the stolen bases, ATC projected him for 10 uh, for he I'm sorry this year they're projecting for 10 stolen bases last year they only projected for 16 so the fact that it's only gone down that little I mean I mean he's still to me he's still a second round value he's just getting knocked out of the top two rounds by players who are being pushed up I think that he's got an extremely high floor like what he did last year and he batted you know 300 he usually does 20 homers five steals 73 RBI 70 runs or so 
Um, that's a floor for me. That's clo- or at least closer to the floor. Like I can't see him bottoming out and not being worth much. So in that respect, in the third round, you're getting a guy who could return first round value and won't lose a ton of value from that spot. Um, I think it's a great pick for him. I think it's very low risk. Um, the ATC interprojectional standard deviation agrees 1.8. That's really projections are basically within like two dollars of each other. Uh, I really like Bo Bichette for that. Now I wish he was priced a little bit cheaper, but even at a two dollar premium, I think it's a very interesting buy. Let's talk about Nico Horner. Well, <laughs> let's there. You got to start with Horner. I'm like, can you hear me smiling from here? The (laughs) thing with Nico, there's so many stolen bases, and I'm here to tell you that he's going to run more as long as he's healthy. Uh, He tweaked his hamstring uh, in early May of 2023, and I went back and looked at his month-by-month stolen base numbers, and in fact, in May, June, and July, he ran about half as much as he ran in April and August on. I actually think that if he is healthy for the entirety of 2024, he's going to clear 50 stolen bases easily. He has an incredible success rate there. And the thing about Nico Horner, he's got a hit tool that is very similar to what we were just talking about with Bo Bichette. He, he hits 275. He hits 280. I actually think there's a 300 season in there. He's kind of tailed off a little bit in some of those years. He's always going to hit low in the Cubs lineup. He's going to score a ton of runs. It's a little pricey for me at this point, and I find myself getting more Matt McLean than I get Nico Horner because I like the power-speed combo that you get from McLean. But I really like Nico Horner here. Excellent pick. Gold glove defense. He's never losing that spot in the lineup. I think for a fifth-round pick, he doesn't have enough power to justify the spot. Uh, you know, less than 10 homers is not a great projection. Now, it's interesting you say that you think it's 50. So you're telling me that that 43 steals from last year is closer to like a median and not a, and not an upside is what you're saying. I am. And he has talked about wanting to run more um, as part of his game and part of his strategy. And that little lull where he, if you go back and look month by month, I think he was 10 for 12 in April. And then he was like, six out of six in May, five out of six or five out of something like that in June. Like there was this very clear lull right after that hamstring situation. And I truly think if he is healthy, he'll just run the way he did in April and the way he did in August and September the entire season. All right, Ruben, what are your thoughts? Well, he's only one of four players who've had a total of 60 or more stolen bases over the last two two seasons. The other three is Acuna, Witt and J-Rod. So he's in great company with that. He's a 280 career hitter. He hits the ball on the ground 47% of the time and hits it to all fields. He doesn't hit every field, 29% at least to each field he hits to, which is great. And he bats either first or second. He started off first, then he batted second. If he's batting at the top of a lineup and he gets on base, he's going to run like crazy. And I have no problem taking him here, even if I have to take, I'll pay a little bit more because you know what? This is fifth round, sixth round. I'm willing to pay a little bit more for steals. I'd rather pay for steals here than in the first or second round. Yeah, we talked about Horner with you last year on the show, Sarah, and we mentioned that you know because of COVID and because that he was injured in the minors, the projections for him for the first couple of years just did an awful job of explaining how he was, and we caught on to that right away. And last, I mean, I, I had Horner on a bunch of teams last year, and. They, whoever had him on the fantasy team was uh, was obviously rewarded. Um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, the comp here is it's Stephen Kwan, but with uh, <laughs> with a lot more steals. Um, yeah, I, the the only thing that bothers me about Horner is the price. Is that I just don't like the spot of being in a hole in the homers, you know, in a fifth round pick for a guy who's single digit homers and. You know, not that many RBIs. Obviously, he's going to have enough runs, so he's more of a three-category guy and low in the others. If you look at the ATC intra-SD, it's on the high side. He's more of a one-category player. I don't like taking those types of guys early on. So in a draft format, I'm less likely to take Horner. I think in an auction, I have a bigger propensity because you can, you know, you can shape the way that you take the pricing of the players. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I'm going to give you one other place in a draft where you where Nico makes a ton of sense. So let's say that you're drafting at the back end of uh, the draft. You're like in that 13 to 15 range. And for whatever reason, you found yourself with like a Juan Soto or an Aaron Judge or maybe both to like start off your draft. Nico allows you to put a guy who has the potential to steal 50 bases with those guys who have no stolen bases, but a ton of power early on in the draft. And so I think that there are builds where Nico makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, with the right build that obviously he fits well and that, that averages right there. So uh, the aggregation of, of the uh, first couple of rounds could make sense. Uh, Ruve mentioned earlier Gliber Torres. Is it Glaber or Gliber? I always say Gliber. Uh, that's one of the, the quirks of this Beat the Shift podcast here. But uh, well, I'll stick with it. Gliber Torres, the lowest inter-SD there is, 0.15. Uh, in terms of dimension, uh, we'll be re- releasing a new stat here. He's a 4.8 dimension. So we, t- we would talk about like one-category players versus five-category players. He's so close to being a full five-category player because he-, he just has strength in every single category. Obviously not as much as Acuna in each, but he's very spread, very flat. Um, <laughs> Gliber Torres is going for a Thales bargain. You're getting a base in every single stat. Um, he's been worth $17, $18 every single year the last couple of years, and he's going lower than that. Um, I think it's a great place for somebody uh, to be taken, and there's other middle infielders that are going above him that I think you can just wait and not go spend your fourth, fifth-round pick. You can get your first one in the sixth, seventh round, which Torres is going. Ruvain, let's start with you first on this one. What are your thoughts on the Yankee? Well, first of all, I think it's pronounced Glaber because John Sterling, whenever he hits a home run, calls it Glaber Day. So I think it's pronounced Glaber, <laughs> but that's that's besides the point. Um, Glaber Torres, he has hit 24 more home runs four out of the last six years. The two years he didn't, 2020 because he didn't play enough games, and in 2021 when his launch angle was only 7% and he, cha- and he moved to shortstop, so he had a position change. So I'm going to take that into, effect, into account. He's a 267 hitter, and he had only a 288 bat last year, which means he was a little bit unlucky, and he's still batted 273 playing 158 games he's in a better lineup i don't see there's i don't see much not to like about him yeah agree sarah thumbs up i'm pretty sure it's glaber too and the only reason i think i know that is because he came up through the cubs system uh he was traded over to the yankees um I think that was the Chapman deal, Chapman trade. honestly, in 2016. Chapman. Yeah, so I, I love Glaber Torres, and I have him in a couple of different places. I think that he goes 30 picks after Nico, and they basically return similar value. They just do it slightly differently, right? Because with Nico, you're really going for that plus steals play, and you're looking for a slightly higher batting average. They're going to give you the same number of runs, 
they're going to give you the same amount of playing time. Uh, with Glaber, you're getting some power. And so if you have put yourself in a situation where that extra 15 home runs is important to you at that point in your draft, I think that Glaber is a much better play for you at that moment. Um, I, I love him, and I think he's an incredible value here. Well, the important thing we've learned is that it's Glaber Torres, and I want to just uh, say goodbye to uh, to Gliber Sorry, on the Gli- show. Sorry, here. Gliber. Yeah. yeah, rest in peace, Gliber. <laughs> well, that's it for Gliber on the Beat the Shift podcast. I thank you all and take a bow for that. Uh, I will mispronounce Jacob Degrum's name though, because he, uh, <laughs> we call him we call him in our household Degrum the Bum because uh, we went to uh, my wife went took the kids to spring training one year and. Uh, he snubbed them and just wouldn't come over and, no, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not going to. So uh, we don't like to grum. I call him to grum the bum. But uh, we'll say goodbye to Gliber. Hello, Gleyber Torres. Excellent pick for 2024. And before we continue, we're going to go to the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Now, we've been talking about how great batting averages in the middle infield. So I did some research, and I looked up the top 10 MLB players' highest batting average over the last three years. And of the top 10 players in baseball with the highest batting average over the last three years, five of them are middle infielders. Can you name them? Do I get to start? You can start, yes. Can I go with Luis Arise? Luis Arise is number one, yes. That was an easy one. Layup. That, that was a layup. That was easy. I'll go with Bo Bichette. Bo Bichette, yes. He was number four. Overall. Uh, okay, Jeff McNeil. Did not make it. He, he, had a, he had a very down year last year, which affected his average. That's true. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, let's go with Corey Seager. Corey Seager did not make this <sighs> list. Think okay. Phillies. Think Phillies. Turner. Ooh, Trey Phillies. Turner. Trey Turner. Yes, Trey Turner. Um, there's num- the number 10 guy you're not going to get. That's Jose Altuve. People forget about him. But oh. his batting average is up there. And the guy we're going to talk about next, Xander Bogarts. Xander Bogarts. Bogarts. I, that was who I was going to guess next. Well, I, 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 I knew the answer was going to be Bogarts. See, what happens, folks, on this show here is uh, <laughs> I don't actually know the trivia that Ruve is going to give. But he tells me where he wants to put the trivia. And so he says, put the <laughs> trivia by Bogarts. So I sort of knew that the answer would be Xander Bogarts. I didn't want to say. But before well, the, the other pod, names I didn't know, of course. Before the pot, I did say you could also put it by Bichette. But I, I – I, decided to keep it by Bogarts because I wanted to talk about Bogarts because he's the boring 31-year-old player yes, who's 80 who hits, hits medium or hard contact 84% of the time. He's he's a, you know his batting average is solid, very solid. He almost went 2020 last year in 1919. I mean, even without Juan Soto in that lineup, he's still going to hit for average. He's still going to get you close to 15 or 20-20-20. So, you know, where he's going right now, I think he's a bargain, and I think he's a buy. When's the last time he hit below 270? Based on uh, what I was just saying, I'd probably say never. I was going to say never, too. <laughs> well, because I, we threw that other thing about Bichette there. Uh, the answer is 2014, but that's that's like that's like never, right? It was a I decade mean, ago, yeah. He's yes. fantastic. <laughs> um, Bogarts was a guy that I used to take in the fourth round very confidently every year. Um, of course, that was in the bouncy ball days when he was hitting 30 home runs a pop. Um, it's a little bit different. He doesn't hit quite as much. Do I believe that he's going to have 19 steals again? No. Do I believe he'll have 10 to 12? Yes. So I'm pretty confident that I know what his skill level is right now. I think the projections are pretty much what he is. And if you value it against the market, 
It's a bargain. And to me, he's the perfect guy in an auction to take. I just, you know, there's a couple of middle infielders that are a couple dollar bargains. Bogarts is one of them. And you take the one that goes if the A if the AAV is thirteen dollars and they're all worth seventeen. I'm gonna get one of them. It's a hot spot. Xander Bogarts is a part of it. Uh, the only only ding I'd say is that the run production that I don't know because the Padres are not as good a lineup. Juan Soto is out of here, so the runs could be slightly down. To me, that's the only ding. Otherwise, I know what his profile is, Sarah. I have two concerns about Xander Bogarts, and it's the reason that I don't have a ton of him right now, but I agree with everything both of you said. And in fact, I also was looking at those 19 stolen bases at age 30 and like, where has this Xander been all my life? The Red Sox are my AL team, so I've been watching Xander a lot over the years. Um, hit The wrist injury that he was dealing with, that he got cortisone shots for both in spring training and in May, gives me a little bit of pause. I, I want to hear more about what happened with that wrist in the offseason, if anything, mainly because I don't know how long you can just keep injecting quarter, co- cortisone into something until it, like, really, really breaks. I know that every, that's— every, and, and, every six months. The answer to that is every six months. <laughs> I, I can tell you medically, I, I don't do knee injections more than every six months, so yeah. Yeah, so I, I was a little bit nervous about that. Um, and I also noticed that his average last year was bolstered by uh, 417 that he smashed in s- September and October. And that that's that's a great sign. I'm really happy about it. I'm, I'm particularly happy about the fact that he only lost about 15 points of batting average moving from Fenway to Petco, which strikes me as one of the worst his contact rate that you can make. <laughs> right? contact rate went up. He had a lower yeah. BABIP than usual. I mean, the, the batting average should be stable. If you don't think he's a 290 hitter anymore, sure, but 270 plus for sure. Totally agree. I'm a little bit nervous about how his hard hit rate has been dropping over the last three seasons. So it was a 43% according to StatCast in 2021 down to 39.5% in 2022 and 34.9% in 2023. And I think that's that wrist injury. And so I just want to know a little bit more there. But I I love Xander. He's he's an excellent hitter. And, yeah, he's a great value here. So the next player, um, you know, just literally in the last 30 minutes, we might change our opinion. Uh, His name is (laughs) Willie Adamas. Um, He wasn't traded, but uh, the Orioles – just got a package uh, that included some sh- uh, nice prospect shortstop. Uh, and the signal that they traded Corbin Burns means that uh, they're probably going to trade him. He's probably one of the bigger assets they have left to trade. But before this, the discussion, Willie Adamas, to me, looked like a really great buy here. So undervalued. Um, he's one of the guys that he had a good year, in, very good year in 2022, not such a good year last year. Probably somewhere in the middle, but you you don't have to pay that price. You're paying for last year's down price. You know, one of those—I love those guys who, good one year, his price went too high. You don't buy him. Then he goes down. Oh, now you buy him the following year. So, uh, and he was—he had a concussion last year, so that messed with him. So, you know, we, we know, I think, why it happened. Adamus is, you know, 25 to 30 power, home run power. He can steal half a dozen steals. Not going to give you anything with the batting average, but maybe he'll get to 250, maybe. He'll have great run production. So, it's a good, boring g- buy. Maybe it's now made worse because of the situation, or maybe he'll be traded to a better situation. I don't know. It's very tough right now to to uh, determine. But for now, 30 minutes ago, to me, he was a buy. Sarah, what's your take on Adamus? And you must be jumping up and down that uh, there goes the uh, – the NL Central is a little bit more wide open for your Cubbies. 
I don't understand how Jed Hoyer hasn't already signed Cody Bellinger. Like, just wrap this division up. Uh, the NL Central is the most aggressively mid division in baseball. The AL Central is bad. The NL Central is like trying to be as average as possible and therefore is always open to anyone. And I just feel like the Cubs should run this division. I don't understand why Jed Hoyer doesn't do that. But that's uh, that's a podcast for a different day. I think Willie Adamas is really interesting. I, I am worried about the batting average, but I think I'm worried about the batting average for a slightly different reason than what you were talking about. Because I, I too thought about the concussion, but then I started looking back at his sprint speed and, and it's declined a little bit each of the last two seasons as his BABIB has slipped. So last year, his BABIB slipped to 278. Or, or sorry, two years ago, it was 278. Last year, it was 259. And it kind of looks like what might be going on here is a little bit related to base running and his ability to like leg out some of the balls that he is hitting. Um, so I, I'm a little nervous that he's not going back to that 250 hitter. He's probably closer to what ATC has him projected at, that 237 hitter. That said, I love an $11 player at pick 188. And as long as he has a job, I am in. I think the thing I'm worried about at the moment is who the Brewers could deal him to because he is a free agent in 2025. I think that the deal that they just made for Corbin Burns that basically gets them Joey Ortiz as their shortstop of the future means that Willie Adamas is the next guy to go. And I don't know if he goes before spring training starts or if he goes at the all-star break, but I'm just not sure what his playing time situation is going to be for the rest of the year. Right. Well, I mean, if they're trading him to a contender, I guess it would be to a spot that he would play or maybe not. It's hard to know, right? It's You're now paying a little bit more uncertainty for Adamas because of this. So do keep that in mind. But I do think that the dollar bargain getting is excellent. Ruvain, agree? I agree, and if Adamus stays where he is, he'll bat three, four, third, fourth, or fifth in that batting order, so you're not really getting him for his speed. You're getting him for his power. He's hit 24 to 30 home runs each of the last three years. His batting average between 217 and 263, so I'll take the under on that. I'll take the lower aspect on it. But if you look at who's being drafted around him, and you need a middle infielder, Trevor Story's being drafted near him, Nolan Gorman, who we're going to talk about, and Ezekiel Tovar. If you need power in this part of the draft, Willie Adamas is the guy you want to get. So next guy, Nolan Gorman, to talk about. Um, he is going later than Adamas. Uh, Ruben, I'll let you start first. What are your thoughts on Nolan Gorman? Is he a budding growth stock player? He is, and he also dealt with injuries last year. He had a hamstring injury, had a back injury. He only played 119 games, and he still hit 27 home runs. And this is not an aberration for him because in the minors in 2021, he had 25 home runs, and in 2022, combined in the majors and minors, he had 30 home runs. What I'm concerned about is his K rate is at 32, but he had the same K rate in the minors. So I don't know if that's, you know, if it concerns me too much. His walk rate has gone up since the minors, and he's hitting a fly ball almost 50% of the time. Add all those things and the fact that this, Gorman, was, they actually said that he's been working on a nutrition program this offseason and is heading towards spring training with increased flexibility and reduced back <laughs> inflammation. This is a quote from earlier this week. So best you know, best, uh, best, uh, best body of his life, best field of his life. I mean, that, that's that's what it comes down to. But he, he, they, the Cardinals have a problem with having young players who play well and keeping them on the field. They're trying to keep him on the field because he's got the talent. Sounds like the Cardinals should be hiring full-time nutritionists and flexor and acrobatics and uh, all, all these things. Uh, <laughs> very interesting, uh, Sarah. Your take on Nolan Gorman? Uh, what do you think of the kid? Only, only, only age twenty-three, by the way. 
I, I love Nolan Gorman and I'm more likely to have Nolan Gorman than I am to have Willie Adamas specifically because the, the playing time is locked in at this point. He is penciled in as their second baseman. And I think that they want to see what he can do there. He had a 16.5 barrel rate last year in that sort of like down injured season. I can't imagine what he can do in his age 24 season when he's fully healthy and in the best shape of his life. I He's going at a right around pick 200. That's an $11 player that you're getting at pick 200. I love the value. I would not be surprised to see him exceed that value at all next season. And I actually think the Cardinals were, as much as it pains me to say it, substantially unlucky in 2023. I don't think they're as bad as they were last season. I think that this is a pretty good lineup around him and Nolan Gorman's going to get a chance to shine. Well, here's that line of demarcation, right? In terms of uh, in terms of risk, the guy with upside, he's going in about the 14th round. Um, you know, for people who are okay with taking risk, this is a great shot for for him because he could have 35 homers next year. Uh, the average is what it is. It's not like he's gonna. It's not like there's a batting average risk. I think we know what he is. He's a 230, 240 type hitter. Okay. He'd steal some even. He'll have a lot of RBIs. That power is fantastic. And he's, as you said, should get the playing time as long as he's healthy. For Even for people like me who made the line of demarcation is about this time, I don't think there's much risk when you're underpriced by $5. Um, I think this is a very, very nice pick. And Gorman has more upside than Adamus. Uh, I, I like Gorman here. And you don't have to pay as much for him either, so... I, I like him. By the way, if, for those who are worried, oh, but will they sit him against the lefties? He actually had a higher WRC plus against left-handers. He had a 130 against left-handers and only a 116 against right-handers. So he hit lefties well. So he's not a platoon risk, all right? He's not going to lose time for that. So I, I like this play. Let's uh, get on to some going a little bit further down here. Jeremy Pena, who I've never been on my radar until I see that he's a bargain. The Houston Astros shortstop. They got rid of Carlos Correa. Probably a good idea. Um, this is a guy who you know came close to 15-15 multiple times. Projections have him as such as a $6 bargain. Any interest, Sarah, in Jeremy Pena for this year? I like him at pick 220. Uh, he's definitely a value there. and I And I think that... My biggest concern with Pena is that his power really collapsed in 2023. He hit like 22 home runs in 2022 and then half of that in 2023. If you go and look on StatCast, it looks like his launch angle flattened out a bit in 2023. I hope he fixes that <laughs> this offseason and changes it a little bit for 2024. Um, because frankly, if he does, I, I think this is a really nice value at pick 220, and I could see Jeremy Pena as a, as a solid middle infielder on a lot of my teams. I like Gorman better than Pena. Uh, Ruven, can you talk about Pena and maybe compare him to Vaughn Grissom that we mentioned earlier in the show, who is similar pricing, similar value, you know, similar potential to go 10-10, 15-15, something like that. Maybe Grissom a better average, uh, but you know, what are your thoughts on Pena versus Grissom? Well, Jeremy Pena, when he came into spring training last year, always saw his pictures of how much he built up his arm strength. You saw his arms were massive. But his exit velocity went down on his average exit velocity went down on fly balls, which is probably why his batting average went down. Right now, he's going somewhere near Ryan McMahon, Brandon Drury, Jonathan India. I think there's still some, some, not a lot, some upside for Jeremy Pena. As opposed to Vaughn Grisham, who is now on the Red Sox, he's going to be playing almost every day. 
at second base, and he's going to be playing a little bit at shortstop because Trevor Story is going to play 140 games this year, right? Sure. So he's <laughs> going to. So Vaughn Grissom is going to play all over the infield. He only lost his job to Orlando Arcia because the Braves have to be a good judge in talent, and they had him penciled in because they thought Vaughn Grissom wasn't ready. Um, in, in for people who don't know, in AAA last year, Vaughn Grissom hit 330, eight homers, 13 stolen bases, and going in the sick around the 26th round right now, I. Grab it in a second. I don't know if Grissom is going that late, but uh, yeah, good, good, good value. Uh, what do you think? You're a Red Sox, uh, Sarah. What, what do you think? I absolutely love Von Grissom, and I'm I'm trying to do some math at the moment, but it looks like uh, he's going at pick 238. I'm so here for it. I think he's going to hit 280 at Fenway easily. The only question is how that power and speed combo will play there, and how much they'll let him run. What that looks like. Um, I don't think it's 20 plus home runs. I think it's closer to like Nico Horner level home runs, but I think that the hit tool absolutely plays and I'm very excited. He's going to be on right on my Red Sox. ATC has him for 10 homers, 12 stolen bases and the 281 average. So uh, a couple dollar bargain, somebody that you might even be able to get really late in an auction, maybe even for $2 with one of your last picks. So if you need a dollar or two middle infielder, very, very good choice to give you. And by the way, it's very hard to find average at the bottom. The average really dries up. Grissom gives you, wow, a 280 guy that that far down who's probably going to play most of the time. That's, that's really good to find. Uh, let's talk about another average guy, Jeff McNeil, our Met who won the batting title uh, two years ago. You know, he had a down year last year, but he was still worth $8. He, he went 10-10. He still hit 270, which is not good for him, but good. So a guy who was was worth $8, he's only going for – Two bucks in like the twentieth, twenty-first round should be the everyday Mets second baseman. They did sign him a little bit long term. Jeff McNeil, a guy that you know, with your last pick, if you need somebody, a reinforcement for batting average gives you maybe ten, ten. As I said, any interest in Jeff McNeil, Ruvain? There is, but there's also injury concern. I mean, he did have this, he had surgery. For, he, sorry, he did not have surgery. He has a partial UCL tear, and they decided not to do surgery. So there's a possibility that he'll be injured again sometime this year. But we were able to see that Max Muncy was able to play to a, a play through a similar injury as well. Now, obviously, they're different types of players. McNeil is more hitting for average. Last year, his batting was 288, and that's low for him. And I, that's why there could be a bounce back for his batting average. He had an increased launch angle and hit more pop-ups to the infield, which just means that he was just pressing a little bit more, I think. And I think the injury, the elbow injury, was bothering more than he let on, and I think that affected his batting average. And he takes Sarah? I mean, I, I love Jeff McNeil. He is the discount Luis Arias way later in a draft, and he gives you outfield eligibility too. I think that with Mauricio out for at least the early part, but probably most of the season, Jeff McNeil has some steady, has steady playing time. He's a good batting average bet down here. You know, we didn't mention Arias as being a bargain. That's because he's not exactly a bargain. Maybe he's going par value, uh, you know, but – is Arias a good pick? We're talking about middle infielder. Is he a good pick for this year? He's so one category, or maybe two if you want to count the runs. Is it wise to spend that much on a batting average only guy? And by the way, batting average is usually fickle. I know it's Luis Arias, the, you know, the, the greatest batting average guy we have today. But is that worth it, putting your, all your eggs in basket for that who's going to give you absolutely no power or no— I wish he even steals. He didn't even steal anything. I think Arias is a very build-dependent player. And so if, for example, you took the risk on, say, Kyle Schwarber and his 50 home run upside early on, 
and you need somebody to equalize that. Arias at pick 163 is a perfectly fine guy to invest in to equalize what you did with your Schwarber pick earlier. Um, but I, I don't love him exactly where he goes. I think that there are lots of guys who I'm way more likely to be in on there. And I, you know, I, I like, I, I'm not in on Arias in most of my leagues at the moment, but I understand that there are certain moments where he makes a ton of sense. Yeah, so as you're going through the draft, there's one team that says, well, <laughs> Arias fits me. Let's take him. That's sort of the, 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 way, the way it goes there. Not, o- not only that, when you have him on your roster, you're less concerned about who you're picking up on the waiver wire because his average will bounce out with their averages as well. So it's not just flexibility for a build, but it's flexibility for in-season picking up low-average players on FAB. That's true. You can't you can't get enough uh, batting average because it's not available really late. So, um, as we said, uh, two more guys to go through quickly. Uh, Jorge Polanco just traded to the Seattle Mariners. Um, he's oft injured is his biggest problem. Maybe Seattle knows something we don't. I don't know. But we know the the skills are there. I mean, we sort of know who he is. Full playing time. We're talking about a guy with. 25, maybe even 30 homers that he did once, 10 steals, averages passable. He's going in round 18. Any interest in taking a risk on Polanco? Then the good thing is he's a low cost, so if he doesn't work out, you can just drop him. He's obviously better in IL leagues where you can put him on your IL. If you're in an NFBC format, you you might be cutting him really quickly, so why even invest? Any thoughts, Sarah, on Polanco? I am really nervous about the new park. For Jorge Polanco, uh, he goes from a park that was good for doubles and home runs to a park that is bad for everything except strikeouts. And I just, yes, it's a positive value at pick 263. He goes late. If you have an IL spot, he's a, he can sit in the IL spot. But I would not be stunned to see his home run total and his average quite a bit lower than current projections have him. I, I just get really scared of any guy traded to Seattle. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I, I'm nervous about him. Ruvain, you're the injury guy. Are you, are you nervous about not if but when Polanco will be injured? I am nervous about him, but we were talking about risk before, and picking him in the 18th round, I'm willing to take that little bit of risk. I mean, a little bit, a lot of bit of risk. Um, he did have surgery coming out of after 2022, so coming into 2023, he was recovering from surgery, so he didn't have a full, healthy offseason. He dealt with knee, ankle, hamstring issues last year. He also played 15 games at third base, so check your leagues and see if he's eligible at third base. That may help you because third base is pretty shallow, and if you want to take a risk on Polanco at third base, that's great. Um, in the 18th round... I, I have no problem taking him. And finally, teammate J.P. Crawford, who had a very nice year last year. He had 19 homers. Um, I, I I can't really see myself taking him. I don't really buy that power. He has very good eye skills and very good contact skills. He had a just a 19-point-something percent strikeout rate, walk rate of almost 15%, so very good plate discipline there. Usually no power. I thought he would steal more. He doesn't steal. His average has been all over the place. He scores some runs. I don't know. I, I'm not buying him. ATC has him as a couple-dollar bargain, but uh, I, I want to pick my middle infielder before it gets to the Crawford spot. To me, I think he can I, – I might see him on the waiver wire. Like, oh, there he is on the waiver wire. I remember you, you know. <laughs> yeah, for the record, J.P. Crawford is after the Von Grissom cliff that I mentioned before. But I like him more than Brandon Lau and Jonathan India – uh, who are right around that area too. J.P. Crawford is worth a few less dollars. I I like J.P. Crawford because he hits in front of Julio Rodriguez and now he hits in front of Jorge Polanco. And I, I think that he can score a lot of runs for you. And so if you find yourself in a situation 
where you need somebody to fill that middle infield spot like I did last year when I lost Corey Seager and I'm like, you know, scouring the waiver wire for Mauricio Dubon. I think J.P. Crawford can be that guy. And I don't hate having him as one of your final draft picks just in case someone gets hurt in spring training. You know, uh, I think we're going to coin the term here, the uh, the Grissom cliff, as uh, <laughs> the point of that's it for the middle infielders. And uh, I know uh, Chris Baseball Pods uh, does listen to the show, and usually uh, he puts a recap of the show. I know he's going to put in there the Grissom cliff. So uh, mark mark my words on that, Chris. Uh, so we'll see you soon there. All right, uh, moving. Uh, let's do injury report. I'm sure there's a lot of injury players. Go for it. Yeah, we'll start with a couple that were mentioned already. Corey Seager had sports hernia surgery this past week. Um, he suffered the injury during the postseason and hoped it would heal with rest over the offseason. It didn't. The Rangers are hopeful, with the quotation marks, that Seager will be ready for opening day. It's possible because this type of surgery can have a one-month recovery time. Ho- Jose Abreu a couple years ago had it, and he recovered in a month, so it wasn't a problem. If not, Ezekiel Durant should be there for you, and that may be an interesting option. Ron Mauricio was mentioned. He had ACL surgery. He's basically done for the year. He got injured in playing in the Dominican League. Um, he's out for about eight to twelve months, so he, he can not don't have to draft him at all. F- teammate Francisco Lindor had elbow surgery to remove a bone spur over the offseason. He played with the elbow injury for the whole season. He should be healthy for spring training. Jake Cronenworth, if you want to you know go after him, um, he was not expected to have surgery. He had fractured wrist. He's healed from it. Shouldn't be a problem. And another guy who you may want to think about, and I don't know if how much risk you want to take on him, Gavin Lux. He's on track right now, coming back from knee surgery. He should be the primary shortstop for the Dodgers. I know he's batting ninth, but that may be a risk you will to take um he may he should be ready for spring training but he may not he hopefully will be healthy when spring training starts other options are shortstop are miguel rojas chris taylor and yeah i guess you can throw mookie Betts in there because he did play short a little bit last year but it's gavin lux's position to lose so you want to bet him that's fine another guy we should watch for is junior caminero the prospect for the Rays, because Taylor Walls is now not expected. He's unlikely to be ready for spring training and for opening day. He had surgery to repair a labral tear in his right hip. He was um, Initially, they thought he would be ready for opening day. Right now, Jose Caballero is penciled into the opening day, but Junior Caminero is one of the top prospects in baseball, and he does play shortstop in the minors. Well, I knew it was going to be a good show when uh, we invited Sarah, and it certainly was. And you know, I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the show as as you do every year. And uh, thanks so much. Um, and why don't you uh, tell everyone what's going on? What was that? What, what do we hear about this? Uh, um, a, a family feud, a fantasy feud <laughs> podcast with Shelley. I started watching the the, the PitchCon uh, Rewind. What well, what's going on with this? Yeah, super excited about it, and I hope both of you will come join us at some point this season. We would love to talk about the ATC projections and talk about injury risk and and more on Fantasy Feud. Um, Shelly Verstraight and I have a new podcast at Pitcher List. We debuted at PitchCon last week. It is called Fantasy Feud. It should be in your pitch uh, Pitcher List feed soon. Uh, and we will be weekly just looking at the biggest debates in fantasy baseball. So we're going to take a kind of different, different track on this than some other shows rather than going through every single pick or every single guy or what's going on every like every waiver wire pickup we're going to look at four or five of the biggest debates and invite guests on to make their case for their controversial takes and 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 just hash it out fantasy feud feud style 
Well, I can't wait to listen to this show. This is uh, fantastic. I, I wasn't able to to uh, go on live and listen to it when it came out, and there was no rewind until literally today, I think. So I'll, I'll have to put that on my calendar and listen the whole season. Uh, what else you got going on, Sarah? You know, still doing Cubs stuff at bleedcubbyblue.com. If you are a Cubs fan, definitely follow my writing and podcast work there. I'm also still writing for Baseball HQ. I've got the playing time tomorrow column for the NLE, so covering a lot of your favorite team, the Mets. And so, yeah, just looking forward to the fantasy baseball season, getting ready for my drafts, and definitely check out the new show, though. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, same here, and uh, looking forward to, to reading that. We we just had the uh, voice of the Mets, Keith Rad, on our podcast last. If you haven't heard that episode, it's a really good one. So take a listen. Ruven, what about you? What, what do you got going on? You can follow me on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come. I also have an in-season article for Rotoballer, which discusses all the injuries and who's up next. And I'm Ariel Cohen. You can find my written work over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. The ATC projections are now up on multiple sites. It's up on Fangraphs, CBS Sports Lime. It's up on Rotoballer, and now also up on Rotowire. So we're getting all over the place. Uh, right now it's up on the player pages. More to come on the Rotowire site as draft season unfolds. Very, very excited to work with the, those good guys over there. You can follow me on Twitter, X, at A-T-C-N-Y, the shortest handle in all of fantasy sports, tied with <laughs> tied with Ray uh, Ray Murphy, who we figured out also has a five-letter name. But anyway, that's the story. ATC projections were named by Fantasy Pros as the most accurate projections in the business for the fifth straight year. So very excited. So much going on. And... Uh, once again, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. Sarah Sanchez, once again, everyone, thank you so much. And from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore shift underscore pod.